All right, so we'll be back in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, yesterday at uh, the men's breakfast, I got the gift of tongues. If any of you recognizes this, I've been talking about the gift of tongues being a temporary gift that has kind of a wind-up effect. And this car here has a little bit of a wind-up, and I can't get it on this. It worked yesterday on the table. I don't think the carpet's going to be, but uh, it has a wind-up effect, and then the wheels spin, and uh, brought back some good memories of my childhood. Uh, but one of the men brought this, as I've been using this as an illustration about the gift of tongues, and uh, it even has flames on it, cloven tongues of fire. I don't know if there was any <laughs> correspondence there or not, but anyway. All right. I appreciated that, and uh, that is a good illustration of the temporary aspect of the gift of tongues. So we've been working our way through this topic, and uh, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians 14. I do want to eventually get to a time uh, here in maybe a couple of three weeks uh, toward the end of this series where we will take a sort of a quiz and help us evaluate our own spiritual giftedness and maybe help us identify what our spiritual uh, gift or gifts uh, are and uh, how we can use those uh, for the Lord. Again, there's spiritual maturity, there is growth in our Christian life and our Christian walk, but every believer at salvation is bestowed a spiritual gift. So we've been working our way through this, and something happened. Oh, I didn't get my PowerPoint pulled up. There we go. Let's try that again. Sorry about that. Okay, so we have identified what a spiritual gift is, looking at these terms and the definition, divine enablement, divine, I can never say that word correctly, divine enablements for ministry that the Holy Spirit gives in some measure to all believers and that are to be completely under his control and used for the building of the church to God's glory. And then the term charisma also, a gift of the Spirit by God's grace. When they are received at salvation, we see four main passages that deal with spiritual gifts. Other passages reference them, including Ephesians 2. And then we have concentrated for some time on the purpose of spiritual gifts. They are for service, for edification, for ministry, for evangelism. And we see some of the key phrases and words that are used. And we are not to be using our spiritual gifts for self-exaltation, for selfish purposes. And then we have spent time looking at the temporary gifts, the gift of the apostle, of prophets, and then miracles and healings. And we have spent some time already looking at these in detail. So I won't go back and re rehearse every single point, but again, those are there for our understanding. And then we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at the temporary gift of tongues, an important gift, a useful gift, but one that is much misunderstood and today is misused and in many cases uh, lends itself to various excesses and even in some cases to apostasy, heretical teaching. And uh, we can talk about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is inundated with the, the wrong use of the spiritual gifts. We can talk about uh, the charismatic movement, again, not every person that's in Pentecostalism or 
the charismatic movement, not everybody that's caught up in that is an unsaved person. There are some genuine believers who are caught up in that. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not here to be all judgmental and, conde- and condemning, but I know there's a Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God, I believe, is, is one denomination that is uh, often involved in the, the Pentecostal uh, movement. But there's a, a church on, on Creasy that in some ways... As I drive by there quite often, in some ways, they put evangelical churches to shame, Baptist churches in some cases. They put some non-denominational churches to shame because those people are there regularly, even on Wednesday nights. And I'll see them even Sunday nights. Their parking lot is full, even as we're uh, coming and uh, going maybe to Culver's or something to eat after church. Uh, I, I've been impressed. This is, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with their doctrine but in some ways, they put other evangelical churches to shame and non-denominational churches and even some Baptist churches because I see them many times. Their parking lot is packed. And I realize there are various reasons um, for that, but uh, they're faithful to their assemblies. And even though we don't agree with their doctrine, um, and again, I'm not here to, to be all judgmental and condemning, but uh, we need to understand this gift and its purpose because it is so misunderstood and misused. And again, I believe it is temporary, and some of the reasons uh, are listed here. We've spent some time in 1 Corinthians 13, and we've looked at this phrase, they shall cease. And again, using this little car as our illustration, as we wind up the wheels on the car, and then as it goes backward, then eventually those wheels spin, and they wind themselves out, and the car comes to a stop. And we can maybe think of a, a reel for a hose or for rope, something like that. Eventually, it is used up. It has met its intended purpose and its usefulness. That's the idea of they shall cease. It will end in and of itself. And then we've talked about the word perfect. And uh, I grew up being taught that the perfect is the Bible. I still lean heavily toward that position, though I know there are good Bible scholars who disagree. Some believe it's the second coming of Jesus, but then you have the contradiction of the term there that's neuter. Uh, Perfect is neuter, so therefore, how could it refer to a person? So some still hold to the view it's the second coming of Jesus, and again, there are good people who believe that. The glorified state in heaven, some argue for that, and then some argue for the perfect being the beginning of the church. And again, I believe uh, it to be, or I lean heavily to uh, it being the Bible, but I can understand the argument for the glorified state in heaven. I think letter B and letter D are somewhat questionable due to the, the use of the word perfect and the, the neuter term. Uh, and then the beginning of the church, we see the gift of tongues being used even in the early days of the church in its temporary nature. So questions about that? Okay, we spent some time there. So then let's go back to this point here. The exercise of the gift of tongues was done by a miraculous act of God without being sought after by the individual. We see much abuse in this area. Today, much of the use of the gift of tongues is either self-induced or we even have some being taught how to practice the gift of tongues, how to get it. And again, like we talked about last week, wouldn't it be great if missionaries, instead of going to language school, 
they could just be taught the gift of tongues instead of spending three years learning a language in some cases they'll spend three years in language school not always in a formal education environment but taking classes they may go i know some missionaries who they went to i think it was to canada for at least a year after they finished deputation their first year was immersed in a language school to be able to learn french and then i think from there they went on to the mission field and they continued to take classes wouldn't it be great if we could have a tongue school and everybody could be taught the gift of tongues and then if they really were effective missionaries they could get the gift of tongues and they could go out and they could preach in that tongues and have an interpreter or whatever the case may be instead of having to go to language school so we see though in scripture that the gift of tongues was not self-induced it was done by a miraculous act of god now let's get into first corinthians 14 just a little bit more here 1 Corinthians 14, we spend some time looking at verse 1 and Paul emphasizing we need to use our spiritual gifts, understand our spiritual gifts, understand how to use them, and understand that the important purpose in the church is for the edification of others, the service of God to others. And he talks about prophesying, prophecy, the instruction of others with the word of God. And less, much less emphasis on showing off with your ability to speak in some gibberish or ecstatic language as the Corinthians are trying to do. He's saying you are abusing this gift. You're not even exercising it correctly. And you've become very selfish about it. He's saying understand your gifts and understand the purpose in the church is instruction with the word of God, edification of others. So, we look at the word unknown. The King James translators added this word for clarity and to help understand that this is a language that is either an unknown language as in no one can understand it it's a completely unknown language or it is a language that's not been previously learned they didn't go to school and learn how to speak it if it is a unknown language in the sense that it is a actual foreign language that they never went to school to learn, then there needs to be an interpreter so that it could be understood. Okay? So unknown can refer to either one. When you look at the word unknown in 1 Corinthians 14, it is sometimes used with the singular use of the word tongue. Okay? In that case, it appears, like verse number 2, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue... Every time it appears before a singular use of the word tongue, it seems to be indicating an ecstatic language, a form of gibberish, that people are trying to say, well, that's me having a special relationship with God. I have this ability to speak in a heavenly tongue that only me and God understand, and then when everybody else hears it, I show that I'm more spiritual than they are because I have this special communion with God. Paul's saying, eh, if you have this gibberish, this ecstatic language, you're either demonic, you're experiencing demonic activity, or you are just trying to have some sort of experience with God that no one can understand, or it's some sort of group peer pressure, group persuasion, something psychological or artificial going on 
As a matter of fact, Paul says, if you think that you're speaking in these in this gibberish, this ecstatic language, he said it's a mystery, verse number two. Who understands? No man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Well, God may know your thoughts, but who understands what you're doing over there? If you're over in the corner having a gibberish fit, if you think that you're having, and, and I've heard people, they, I know somebody who has bragged about having this devotional time with them between them and God, and they, they, they're bragging about how they, in their personal devotions, they had this ecstatic gibberish going on, and they were saying that that was something that elevated them spiritually. They had a special time with God that other people don't have. That's very, very dangerous. And then that person has very little knowledge of the Bible, very little understanding of the Bible, but they have this experience and Paul's saying in verse 2 you have this experience it's a mystery God may know your thoughts but how is that helping the church what is that doing for the church it sounds like you're just showing off but when the word unknown is before the plural use of the word tongues it appears to be referring to an actual language that hasn't been previously learned but that person is speaking in that language okay so how many different forms of gibberish and ecstatic languages are there? <laughs> it's, it's all just one language, really. If it's not known, if it's not understood, if it's gibberish, if it's ecstatic language, then it's just one language. It doesn't, care, it doesn't matter if it's Spanish or if it's English, French, or some other kind of dialect. If it's not an intelligent language, if it's not an actual language, then it's just one unknown language impossible language to understand okay so he's saying that there is a unknown tongue that is just gibberish that is just an ecstatic language that people are trying to claim is heavenly is a language that only them and god know and that gives them a special unique avenue to god and he's saying that is not the proper gift of tongues if you look at acts chapter 2 those are actual languages. They are listed there, and it appears in Acts 2, when Peter's preaching, that they are understanding him in their own dialect. That is a miraculous act of God, and the languages are listed. We could get into more with 1 Corinthians 14. There are some exceptions where the word unknown is used before a singular use of the word tongue and it's actually referring to a real language. That seems to be where an individual is speaking in an actual language in a, in a singular sense. So there's a little bit of exception there, but hopefully that helps as you read through 1 Corinthians 14. The singular use of the word tongue with the word unknown is probably referring to gibberish, an ecstatic language. Tongues is probably referring to an actual known language. Okay? Other arguments, Jesus never spoke in tongues. Uh, I know that maybe not is the strongest. The gift of tongues is absent from the Gospels. That is one argument for the temporary nature of the gift of tongues. Why is it not taught? When Jesus taught in John 14 and 15 about the coming of the Holy Spirit, why did he not say that the sign to you would be cloven tongues, unknown languages, a mystical language? He didn't say that. He referred to the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling them and being a comfort, being a guide 
convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He did not say anything about the physical act of speaking in some gibberish, ecstatic language, or unknown tongue. That wasn't until Acts 2. Now, Joel prophesied of Acts 2, and it was partially fulfilled at Acts 2. The prophecy in Joel was partially fulfilled in Acts 2. So Joel prophesied, and it appears in Joel 2, that he was speaking of this experience that they would have, but he was not saying that was normative for the entire church age until Jesus Christ returns. He was referring to a special miraculous act of God, a one-time act in Acts 2. Now, Acts 8, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. They trust Christ, genuinely receive Christ in Acts 8. The Samaritans, it's implied that they speak in tongues, but Acts 8 doesn't specifically say the Samaritans did. What would be the point in the Samaritans speaking in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit? What would be the point? As a sign to the Jews that even the Samaritans are included in the church. Even the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. For a Jew, they would need a sign they would need to understand the importance that even the Samaritans need the gospel and can be saved and can receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter number 10, who is it that receives the Holy Spirit and speaks in tongues? In Acts 10, a Gentile by the name of, who's a Roman centurion. Acts 10 was who? Cornelius. Remember Peter got the, the blanket, the dream, the vision? The blanket came down, and all of us say amen, not just because the law, Peter was understanding the law had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but also he was saying it's okay to eat the meat. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go home this afternoon, I'm going to eat some pork chops. They're in the sink, thawing out, I'm going to grill them. Hopefully they're not going to get torched. I'm thankful, I, we were up in Shipshawana for anniversary, I was able to get some, some beef and some summer sausage. I love the meat. I'm thankful. And he said, after Noah got off the ark, he said, eat the meat. And then he told Peter, eat the meat. I'm not saying if you have for health reasons, you have to be a vegetarian. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But God said to eat the meat. It's, I don't, have you been to the store and seen this plant-based meat? Do you know they're making meat now in a Petri dish? That is nonsense. I want a cow. I want a pig. You know, I don't want some chemical-induced, plant-based burger. That's ridiculous. And we're saving the earth because the cows aren't going to create so much carbon dioxide or whatever with their flatulence. And that, that way we can save the earth by not eating the meat. It's just nonsense. I just, unbelievable. Give me a good juicy burger. I love turkey burgers. Uh, anyway, I'm getting hungry now, so. All right. So, we go on. Tongues is absent from the latter books of the New Testament. By the time we get to John's epistles, Jude, Revelation, even the pastoral epistles, does Paul teach Timothy and Titus? Make sure in preaching the word and being instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine and teach your church how to speak in tongues. Does he include that in his instruction to the church in the pastoral epistles, it's not included there. 
Because by that time, it is dying off. It is going away. It's not a regular practice. It is serving its usefulness. Revelation. Do we see it? No. Was any, were any of the churches, any of the seven churches, rebuked for the lack of speaking in tongues? No. Leaving their first love, lukewarmness, compromise with false doctrine, the Jezebel, but never in those seven churches do we see anything about their lack of the use of tongues. As a matter of fact, it's the Corinthian church that's rebuked for not exercising the gift of tongues properly. And then after that, pretty much not said again, not spoken of again. Signed to unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. We go down, wish we had time to go through this whole chapter, but it's impossible for us to spend uh, all of our time looking at all 40 verses. But verse 22, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. For, but prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. He's, and again, he's encouraging the Corinthian church to exercise the gift of prophecy, to be instructing, to be teaching one another from the word of God, not emphasizing tongues. When tongues is properly exercised, it becomes prophecy. It becomes instruction, teaching of the word. Yet the experience of tongues is what they're seeking after to show off, to try to elevate themselves spiritually, to try to say, well, I'm having this spiritual experience that you don't have, and Paul's rebuking them for that. As a matter of fact, it's a chaos. It's a disorganized mess. And he's saying, even at the end of the chapter, let all things be done decently and in order. They come into the church. The unsaved people come in the church and they think it's a bunch of barbarians. He said they should come in the church and hear the instruction of the word of God and be rebuked and be convicted for their sin. It's okay for unbelievers to come to church. The church is primarily for believers. We see that again here in 1 Corinthians 14. The church, the actual gathering of God's people is for God's people, for saved individuals. Unsaved people are welcome to come. But when they come, they ought to say, hmm, these people have a relationship with God that I don't have. There is something distinct about them. They shouldn't come in and see a bunch of craziness going on in chaos. Paul rebukes the Corinthians. He says, you're pushing the unsaved people away. They don't have a clue what's going on. Let all things be done decently and in order. We also see in passages that deal with the filling of the Holy Spirit, the control of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, they make no mention of the gift of tongues. Ephesians 5, Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faith, or faithfulness. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the signs of spiritual fruits, of spirituality, of spiritual maturity. But what do, what, what do we want to do? We want to say, well, I had that experience with God. I had this ecstatic experience. I had this gibberish. Me and God were on talking terms today, and nobody else had the avenue with God that I had. But I'll go and lust and have anger and have discontentment and show no patience, have no long-suffering, have no joy, certainly no peace, but me and God, we have this thing. And if you were really spiritual like me, you and God would have this thing like I do. That's the attitude. 
And then we have people that are literally being dragged down the aisle and being told that they have to speak in this language, that have this experience. It's, it's not according to the principles of the Word of God. And then we see number eight, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not tongue speaking, nor is it evidenced by tongue speaking. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is a holy life. He says in Romans 8 and verse 29 that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He doesn't say anything about trying to gain a higher level of spirituality through spiritual experiences. Again, we come back to Hebrews 1. God has spoken unto us by his son. We go to, uh, forgetting the, the other passage uh, that I'm trying to reference, um, I think it's 2 Peter 1 or 1 Peter 1, where Peter references the Mount of Transfiguration, but he says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 12, caught up into the third heaven. He's not saying, hey, I had this angelic, I, I, I got to talk to this angelic being. None of you have. And he was told, actually, don't even talk about it. There were things that he experienced and maybe had a conversation with that man in the third heaven. As Paul was given that miraculous gift and that ability Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12, I couldn't even, I can't even tell you everything that I experienced in that vision. And as a matter of fact, to make sure that I don't get proud about it, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Peter, again, a more sure word of prophecy. He said that Mount of Transfiguration experience was a great experience, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. He's not saying... You need to have a bound of transfiguration experience like me. If you're really going to serve God, if you're really going to be spiritual, you need to get something like what Peter, James, what me and James and John got at the Mount of Transfiguration. Is that how Peter addresses that? No. We see the emphasis over and over on the fruit of the Spirit, holy living, not being conformed to this world, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, love not the world, the things that are in the world, etc., etc. We go to many other passages. And then we go to a ninth reason in Acts 8. There it is. Philip led an Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. Did he say, now speak in tongues? What did he do? When, the, when they came upon some water, what did the Ethiopian eunuch ask to do? To be baptized. It seems that even by Acts 8, we're already seeing a transition, aren't we? He gets saved. There's no mention of the gift of tongues. He receives the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on back down to Ethiopia, sub-Saharan Africa, and we understand he's probably part of the way, along with uh, tradition says, I forget which apostle, also probably went down into sub-Saharan Africa and took the gospel to the regions of Africa. But there's no mention of the, the gift of tongues there. What about uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30? I think uh, Earl made reference to this a couple weeks ago when uh, he brought uh, up a question. 1 Corinthians 12, 29. Are all apostles? 
What are the answers to each of these questions? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Verse 30. Have all the gift of tongues? No. Wouldn't it seem like if everybody were to have this gift in order to be spiritual, that Paul would say, yeah, you all need to have the gift of tongues. Paul does reference, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, I wish that you all did have the gift of tongues, but he says that in the context of, so that you would edify each other, so that when exercised properly, it comes to the level of prophecy, and you would be instructing one another in the word of God. So Paul even says, if you all had the gift of tongues, I wish that you did, so that it would be for the instruction of God's word, so that it would be for the edification of one another, so that we would know God better, know his word. So we see that even in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 and 30. And then number 11, the gift of tongues, again, served a specific purpose in the early church, was instrumental in the spread of the gospel throughout the world at that time. So we get to, I believe it's um, Acts chapter 19, and we see the last exercise of the gift of tongues, and that was the converts of John the Baptist who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That's the last transitory group, last transition. You have the Gentiles, or some you have the Jews, Acts 2, Samaritans implied, Acts 8, Cornelius and the Gentiles, Acts 10, and then I believe it's Acts 19, it's the converts of John the Baptist. By that time, at the end of the book of Acts, we don't see it anymore. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians 14. That's about it. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, the list of the gifts. But we see it had fulfilled its purpose. It had wound itself out. By the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, those wheels, in a sense, of that gift are wound out. It has ceased. And it is no longer functioning. Now, it revives itself in the 20th century, and uh, if you wanted to read some more, I'm not going to get into all the historical aspects, but Gromacki's book, The Modern Tongues Movement, excellent. He goes through the historical use of the gift of tongues. He references early church fathers who, by and large, said the gift of tongues had ceased. They either don't mention it or say it's only used by kind of some cultic, weird-type groups. He deals with the outbreak at the uh, Azusa Street, I forget the exact movement, the Azusa Street movement, and the different denominations that came out of that, and the abuses of the gift of tongues. He deals with it quite in detail. And then John MacArthur's book, I've read this at least twice, uh, Charismatic Chaos, excellent, excellent book. Uh, if you have... If you have several hours and want to watch his or listen to his Strange Fire conference from a, about six or seven years ago, it is well worth the time. Um, excellent. I listened to every single message, I think, in that conference, um, the Strange Fire conference. And it was excellent in dealing with the excesses of the charismatic movement and the improper use of the gift of tongues. And in 1 Corinthians 14, among the gift of tongues, okay, I don't want to be offensive here. But what does he say down in verse 34? 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34. Who is to be silent in the churches? Who? Women. Women. Okay, this is not a misogynist, chauvinistic passage where women are doormats 
and the men walk all over them, and this is not husband worship, okay? Look out for those people who basically, I mean, Kelly does not build an altar in our house to me and offer sacrifices to me, believe me, okay? She does not worship me. She's far from that. She, she knows I ain't worthy of worshiping, okay? There's no husband worship being taught here. But he's saying the proper use of the gift of tongues, in a sense, even rises to the level of preaching and teaching. And in mixed company, this is where we draw this from, that women can teach other women. And we have very good preaching, teaching women, even in our church. In every ministry I've been, there's been some good teaching, preaching women. But they are to exercise that ability with women and children. 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the context of a church. And they're not to be worship leaders, not to be preaching from the pulpit, not leading the church in that sense. The Southern Baptist Convention just took a stand. They still have, there's, I've read that there's estimates of more than a thousand women who are still preaching in Southern Baptist churches. That's, I'm, I'm not here to get into a, there's some very, very good gospel preaching churches among the Southern Baptist Convention. We're not a part of the convention. Uh, I don't want to get into all the reasons why. But in the Southern Baptist Convention, I read an article, and he was saying that even though they kicked out Rick Warren's church, which they should have done a long time ago with his pragmatic, shallow gospel, watered-down gospel, anyway, um, they kicked out, I forget, another church where they were ordaining women. They had women who were pastors. And then after they did that, Stephen Furtick's church, the Elevation Church, they're now mad because they got women preachers. And then there's a big church outside of Atlanta. They've got women preachers. And there's, again, the statistic is that there's over a thousand still in the Southern Baptist churches that are women pastors. I'm glad the Southern Baptist Convention took a stand um, in that area. But what I'm, my point is that among the Pentecostalism and charismatic philosophy that often incorporates the gift of the use of tongues, this wrong use of the gift of tongues, oftentimes women have leadership roles. I've often seen among Pentecostals and charismatics, the women are the leaders in the church. Okay? I'm not trying to be critical of women. Not trying to be here condemning of women. Women are more emotional by nature. What does the gift of tongues lend itself toward? Emotional, ecstatic type utterances. I've often seen Pentecostal charismatic churches led and dominated by women. And I don't mean this the wrong way, in a derogatory way, but sometimes they're very loud mouth women, bossy women. Because they have a gift, and they even can lord it over the men. Anyway, Paul is addressing that, and uh, he even deals with that with the qualifications for the, the pastorate. When I was candidating here, going through the questionnaire, uh, one of the things they went through was, was Kelly and her support of my ministry, and she has been 100% supportive. I thank the Lord for that. thank the Lord for her. I've taken her on adventures that she never thought that she was going to go on with me. And I thank the Lord she's been supportive 100% of the way. But one of the things that we dealt with was husband and one wife. Does that not make it clear? 
the office of the pastor and the office of deacon is for who? Men. Husband and one wife. Seems pretty obvious. Okay. Before I give these last four points here, any questions? I'm going to throw four points. So why the rise in interest and use of the gift of tongues? Five quick points. Many times it's the lack of Bible study and departure from dispensational understanding of the Bible. It's just, we don't know our Bibles. We don't know how to interpret Scripture by Scripture. We don't know the overarching theme and story of the Bible. We want to pick out our little key verses. And many times, those who are caught up in these errors and excesses, they want to pick out their verses, take them out of context. They don't understand dispensational understanding, temporariness, even certain vocabulary and phrases. And they love to cherry-pick verses and use them as their weapon verses. They have their sword, their verses with their sword. Sometimes I think it's a... What did we... What did Caden shoot yesterday? That was an incredible weapon. What was that? The, he shot the, 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 the pinata. What was that? AR-10. And what was the... 308. And then what was the explosive? Cataract? Okay. Tanarat. Okay. It blew up. That's all I know. <laughs> it exploded. There was no candy in the pinata. But anyway, we had a good time with that. But th- that's the way some people use the Bible with their, their verses. It's like a 308 with an explosive that I can't pronounce. <laughs> you know? they, and they take it out of context and they use it. And they ignore the other passages and the whole of Scripture. So, lack of Bible study, departure from dispensational understanding of the Bible. Uh, liberal churches that don't want sound doctrinal teaching, but they want supernatural activity. We live, in, we live in a culture of celebration, events, excitement, emotion, fun, entertainment. I battled it for years, still do to some degree. Everybody just wants to have fun all the time. we got to make school fun. School just has to be fun all the time. So you buy hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars worth of all these gizmos and games that are supposed to be educational. Right? And you still have to learn algebra and math and pre-calculus and still have to study the literature and you still have to read and think and analyze. (laughs) On and on it goes. But we want the instantaneous gratification and... Don't have to work for it. And always at our fingertips fun. Well, it bleeds into the church. We want all the supernatural. We want the signs and the wonders and all the phenomenon. But we don't want to do the effective spiritual disciplines and the right interpretation of the word of God. And preaching in season and out of season, that's boring. That's irrelevant. Who expects to go and listen to a 45-minute message anymore? Right? I mean, who has time for that? But they'll go by the thousands to hear a political speech, which is the same old sound bites repeated for 45 minutes. Anyway, I get carried away. Sorry. Number three, churches with little to no energy for evangelism, ministry, and fellowship will sometimes seek excitement as a replacement. Again, it kind of goes hand in hand. You've got liberal churches depart from doctrinal teaching. They want supernatural activity. And then you have all this excitement. And Not that we can't have joy in the Lord. Of course we do. But we don't come to church and have a celebration like we do at a basketball game, a pep rally, or some other 
championship parade. We don't come to church and expect to celebrate Jesus the way we celebrate a celebrity, a superstar, a concert, an event, a political speech, a basketball game, a baseball game. We don't treat our God the same way. But I think that sometimes what is called worship today is nothing but self-centered emotion, excitement, and we're bringing God down to the level of, I don't know, some superstar or celebrity or some basketball game. Of course we have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Of course we can have the peace of God even in hard times and tribulation. Of course. But we don't, we, again, we, we don't treat our God the same way we treat a celebrity, a superstar, or some sporting event. Number four, some people look for a spiritual, quote-unquote, experience that will solve all their problems and frustrations. I talk about the spiritual pill. We want to have some sort of experience that solves all of our problems, that takes us to a higher level of spirituality that we can point to, and that somehow instantaneously gives us whatever, victory, or we want to microwave our Christianity. We want a 30-second or a three-minute mac and cheese cup or fake mashed potatoes that we stick in, and we want that to be our spiritual life. Give me the pill for my troubles. We live in a therapeutic age. Everybody wants therapy. Now, there's a place for therapy. There's a place for that. But everybody, and now it's crept into the church, and the church, I'm supposed to come to church and know everybody's felt needs so I can be a therapy, I can be a therapist. And my preaching is good therapy. Well, what does that lend itself to? Psychology and all that other stuff. And there's a place for understanding the mind and the brain. There is physiological aspects to our temple that we need to understand. But oftentimes we overlook sin. We overlook the, overlook the relationship that an individual has with God. Those things are many times overlooked in modern psychology. Um, Emily's in biblical counseling. She's learning. Uh, Dr. Mazak down there is one of my favorite professors. He, he was in psychology right at Ohio State. And he, he got saved out of that. And he deals with it. And has a lot of real understanding of the modern psychological movement. And he's able to help uh, the students there. And I know there's others. There's other good professors, good Bible scholars, good preachers out there who understand some of that modern psychology stuff and how to... Uh, in the counseling ministry uh, down the road here that uh, I know people have been involved in that for years in the new set of counseling. Um, I know people even close to me who have been helped through that ministry. Um, but we can go on and on about that. But the idea of having a quick fix and experience. And then number five, some people think they need to feel, need to feel a supernatural experience in order to be spiritual. A little bit redundant there. Those are five potential or possible reasons why there is such an emphasis on this and on these temporary gifts, gift of tongues, healings, miracles, etc. Questions or comments? Does God st still heal? Does God still do miracles? Yes. But he's not using individuals with supernatural power flowing through them in the way that he did with Moses, Elijah, Elisha, the apostles, or the two prophets to come, or Jesus himself. Um, was the gift of tongues useful and effective? Yes, it had its purpose. It's a temporary gift. We don't have apostles living today. The gift of prophecy is exercised in the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. We don't have people receiving new revelation. 
So I hope that has been a help. Next week we'll get into some of the specific, uh, the other specific gifts that are listed in these passages. Any, again, any final comments or questions? No? Okay, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, we thank you for our church family and thank you for this time together. We can look into your word. Thank you for giving us answers, even though, Lord, it requires us to be diligent and to search the word and to know the word of God. Lord, we thank you that you require that of us and that, Lord, you've given us the, the Holy Spirit to guide us and to give us discernment and help us, Lord, to be biblical, help us, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Help us to apply these principles and help us to live faithful to your word and obedient, Lord, and live a holy life that's being conformed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, again, thank you for being here. We'll get ready for the service here in just a few moments.